Good morning. Oh, it's a good day, guys. It is a good, good day to be in the house of the Lord, and we are going to walk through the text that we just read. We are in a series called In Jesus' Name, Amen. As we've been going through the book of John, uh, we are on schedule to finish it in 2037. (laughs) Pretty excited about that. So, you know, mark your calendars. This book is written by the disciple whom Jesus loves, John, Jesus' homeboy, if you will. And he writes from a perspective that many of the other disciples didn't have, and he writes this gospel to make known that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the great I am, and as we will see over the next many passages, that he is the bread of life. In chapter 6, as we've already started, we've seen Jesus perform some miracles. One of the miracles was known as the feeding of the 5,000, where he actually fed many more than that from just a little bit of fish and a few loaves of bread. We've seen him walk on water. We've even seen him put the disciples in hyperspeed across a lake. And the crowds have been traveling in droves to see Jesus, and they've heard about his miracles, they've heard about his signs, and many were fed by his creative miracle through the feeding of the 5,000. And now as they've been looking for him, they've noticed that somehow he's gotten across the lake without ever being seen entering the lake by boat. So that's where we start, verse 25. When they, the crowd, found him on the side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Another way to ask this question, which is implied, is how did you get here, Jesus? This is this inquisitiveness that the crowd has because something is fishy. They're wondering how he arrived on the other side of the shore, but it seems like a fair question, doesn't it? Almost a question out of surprise, like, oh, hey, Jesus, when did you get here? And most of us, if we were Jesus in this moment, we would probably answer the question that was asked. Oh, like five minutes ago. But what does Jesus say? Jesus answered, verily, verily, or truly, I tell you. I dare someone to use that this week. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Oh, Jesus, you don't ever answer a question in the way most of us would. You know the hearts of people. And so almost always, Jesus gets right to the point with the answer to a question, or he tells a parable that confuses many people. I think this also shows the divinity of Jesus, because for you or I, (laughs) we'd probably be bragging on the miracle, right? Yeah, see what I just did? But he doesn't do that. He gets right to the heart. Jesus is calling out the carnality in the crowd. They are not there because of the signs. This word sign, it does not mean a miracle that was to entertain like magic. But this miracle was to be attractive, to be a neon sign, if you will, pointing to Jesus, that he is the Christ. And these people were attracted not by the miracles or the signs, but they were attracted by the nature of God to give sustenance to them, to give them their fill. Verse 27 Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Church, if you're in this place today and you're thinking about what tattoo should I get, I recommend this verse. It's a good one, and we'll see why, because it's a profound statement. 
considering how many of us live our lives attempting to feed the meter of our life and just continuing to do things that perish, continuing to do things to basically chase after an American dream that never satisfies. The human condition is to want meaning, but to reject it by settling for a treadmill that never satisfies or progresses. That's how many of us live our life, church. For those that are Christians, we understand that this life is not our own. Once we have been redeemed by the finished work of Jesus, we no longer have to live a life that is for the meaning of man, but for the purpose of the king. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Allow your work to matter, to be of something more important than the temporal, but of the eternal. And the bread in which Jesus speaks of is actually himself, if that's a spoiler for any of you. He is the bread of life, which we see him call himself in just a few verses, but I need to make sure that our reading of this text doesn't go into cultish waters. Do you know what I mean? You guys know what cults are? And sometimes when we read the text, we start to put what we want into the text or what other people want into the text. So I don't want you to read what's not here. It says, do not work for food that spoils, but food that endures until eternal life. And here's how the religiousness in us adds to this verse without meaning to. Do not work for food that spoils, but work for, which it doesn't say, food that endures until eternal life. And why I know it doesn't say that is, if it says work for, then we start to work for our salvation and the gospel is in conflict with working for your salvation. Hallelujah. So you can read this verse, you can strip it of its context, you can strip it of its meaning and get to say it what you would want it to say, but what you might want it to say where you can work for your own salvation is not consistent with the rest of scripture. It's not consistent with this letter written by John or even this chapter based on the next few verses. See, works do not justify us. There's one thing I hope you take away, you understand that. Works do not justify us. Works or our actions may be justification of our belief, but it is our belief that justifies. It's who you believe in, not what you do for him. That justifies. So this food that endures to eternal life is not a thing, but a king. Do you see the difference? It is not something that you're trying to get. It's not sustenance. It is not a thing, but it is a king, and that king's name is Jesus. It's not that the son will give you some type of substance that will fill you, but will give of himself, which is what we all need to be filled with, and that is evidenced by the Holy Spirit that eventually ends up dominating us when we trust Jesus. You guys know we all have worldly appetites? Like, who, who's hungry right now? Be honest. All right, Megan, what do you want to eat? Give me something. Give me something good. Breakfast burrito. And everyone's <laughs> stomachs just growled a little. And we have worldly appetites, and some of that is, man, I just want a breakfast burrito. Carl's Jr. has good ones, just so you guys know. Okay. (laughs) And we have these worldly appetites, but a lot of worldly appetites, if not in check, lead to gluttony. They also lead to idolatry. They also lead to a lot of other perverse things. But our spiritual appetite, 
which we try to get a lot of things to fill the spiritual appetite, but our spiritual appetite can only be filled by the Son of God coming into our lives and changing us from the inside out. Why? Because of what it says at the end of this verse. Because in him the Father has placed his seal of approval. That's why we talk so much about Jesus, church. If someone asked you, what's your church like? You'd probably say something to the effect of, they talk a lot about Jesus, right? You laugh because you know that's what we do. And we talk about Jesus because when you stand before God, the only thing that will make a lick of difference is not your moral record, but your relationship with Jesus. It's not how you behaved in this life, but to whom you believed. It's not what you do, but whose you are. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And that's a misnomer for some of us. We've missed it. We think, well, if I just do enough good, then then God will love me. Hear me, young adult, less than young adult, more mature than a young adult, whoever you are, hear this. God loves you perfectly right now. And I know this because of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. So it's not about you. It's about what Jesus has done for you. And Jesus Christ is whom God the Father has placed his seal of approval on. So are you with him? Or are you going to attempt to earn something that was already given to you as a gift? Verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? That was almost a do-do. What must we do to do the works God requires? What a question. What an incredible question. What a real life question that every single one of us at some point in our lives has asked. Maybe not out loud, but we've thought about it. If you believe in God or you don't believe in God, you've probably asked, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And this is a fair question, especially in this context. Jesus is explaining how to not settle to work for food that spoils. But if we're not supposed to work for that, what are we supposed to work for, church? If we're not here to work for food that spoils, what should we work for? It's a totally fair and appropriate question that is being asked. And whatever is about to be said next, church, whatever Jesus who at least in this context is known as a prophet or a really special person, a magician that's done some pretty amazing things, the son of Mary and Joseph, he seems to have a following and a reputation that states he's a bigger deal than your average religious man. So what does he say? Because whatever he's about to say, we need to take his law. What must we do? What, What are the works that we must do? And he says in verse 29, Jesus answered, the work of God is this to believe in the one that he has sent. Drop the mic. What must you do? You must believe. Wait. Huh? This concept may be too simple for some of us. It might sound too easy. But the crazy thing about this is, in this room, for some, it sounds too easy. And for some, it's too complicated. It's weird. The work or action God requires of someone who wants to do enough is to believe that what Jesus did was enough. See what he did there? This doesn't seem to make sense. 
if you're someone who wants to constantly justify themselves based on what you do, that is exactly what this crowd was attempting to do. Their upbringing and their influence of the law would absolutely paint a picture for each of these people that by keeping the law, the regulations of the law that God had given through Moses would be expected in order to please God. But here's the crazy thing about pleasing God biblically. Hebrews eleven six says the only way you please God is through faith. And Ephesians 2, verse 8 reminds us that not only did God give us grace, but he also gave us the faith that pleases him. Hmm. Crazy. The one the Father has sent. And consistently through Scripture, we see that what pleases the Lord is not our heartless action. Or let me use a term that I like to use pretty often, our begrudging submission, but our acknowledgement, affirmation, and allegiance that Jesus is your Lord. That was just a commercial for AAA. All right, that's what that was. Your acknowledgement, affirmation, and allegiance that Jesus is your Lord. But look at the most important word in that tweetable phrase. Your Lord. Sermon's not a real sermon unless you use an old dead theologian. Here's one, Martin Luther. He says, the life of Christianity consists consists of possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a savior. It is quite another thing to say he is my savior and my Lord. The devil can say the first. The true Christian alone can say the second. You picking up what he's putting down? And for those of you that think that this is too easy, it's actually because it's too hard for you. It's because it's too hard for you because your heart is too hard to believe that anything but your own effort could justify you, which is just really spiritual narcissism, if you think about it. It's not that belief is too easy, it's that we settle, we stop at intellectual assent rather than a repentant, grateful response to God's grace. We settle to just say, well, I believed, good for me. And then we put in time and we put in effort and we come to church once a week, maybe, and we maybe give some money in the offering and we maybe do a Bible study and maybe we read a devotion if we saw a verse on the bottom of our in and out cup. That was a California reference. (laughs) In Colorado and Arizona now. But here's the thing. It's not that we do anything to earn what was already given to us as a gift, but we want to serve him because of the grace that he's already shown us. We say all the time, coming to church does not justify you. We say this all the time, but hear me, okay? When I say that, come. It would suck to preach to an empty room, okay? So come. And there's something special about worshiping together. There's something special about seeing, knowing that there are a few of you that maybe I don't get to see throughout the week, but I know I'm gonna see on Sunday, I'm gonna get to catch up, and maybe that creates an opportunity for us to see each other during the week. Come. Because this is the place we equip you to be disciple makers. Come, because this is the place that we corporately celebrate that Jesus is Lord and that he's coming back. That even though we constantly say that coming to church doesn't justify you, going to church doesn't make you a Christian as much as going to Taco Bell doesn't make you a taco. But here's the thing. If going to a church service is out of a repentant, grateful response to God's grace that you've been given, 
that it doesn't justify you, but it is absolutely a byproduct of your justification. So if you come here because you want to worship God, because God's changed you, that's a great reason to be here. If you're trolling for single people, I will find you. And I will, never mind. The problem is that not every that isn't tr- not everyone is coming because of a grateful a repentant grateful response to the grace that God has given. Within a crowd like this, we are sitting around people each week that may be headed in completely different eternities than we are. They may be going in a different direction than we are. So here's the question: Are we saved by works? You ready? Grab your pew. You ready? Yes. Jesus' works. What? (laughs) Some of you were like, Harry, you're right. (laughs) Jesus' work. The finished work of living the life you couldn't die and the death I should have died and physically rising from the dead. That is the work that saves us. Nothing that we do on our own. So you want to know the work that God requires? It's to believe and trust that Jesus' work was and is enough. <sighs> that sounds easy. For those who don't know what it's like to struggle with a Christ-centered life. I love that the Lord speaks through Paul, the apostle, who was against Christianity, murdering Christians, comes into contact with Jesus post resurrection. They have this conversation. Paul doesn't just stop killing Christians. He switches teams and starts to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ and writes this letter to the church in Rome. And he says this, and it sounds like a riddle, but hear it. Romans 7 verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. (laughs) But what I hate, I do. Say what? Here's what he said. The Spirit of God is in me. I know what I ought to do, but I rarely do what I should do because the old man, the the old way of life, the pre-Jesus, Holy Spirit filling me time takes over a lot. This is an ongoing struggle for the believer because even though we have been justified by believing in the one true God and his son whom he has sent, we still want to do things that are our former self prior to the Holy Spirit changing us. I hate this. I hate the thoughts and the urges and the wants that I often have that go against God's will. But I am so glad. I'm so grateful that even though the Lord accepted me where I was, he hasn't let me stay there. Come as you are, he says, like the great Nirvana song. But God will not let you stay there if you truly come to him. The story was told some years ago of a pastor who found the road blocked on his way to a Sunday morning church. So he was forced to skate on a river to get to the church because it had frozen over, which he did. When he arrived, the elders of the church were horrified that their preacher had skated on the Lord's day. After the service, they held a meeting. Of course they did. 
where the pastor explained that it was either skate to church or not go at all. Finally, one of the elders asked, did you enjoy it? When the preacher answered no, the board decided it was okay. I don't expect all of you to get that, because you didn't. But for a lot of us, we start to look at the laws and regulations as things that we must do in begrudging submission. That if we enjoy ourselves, if we are like David and we actually meditate on God's law and we consider it a joy to be able to do what the king has said, if we do that, that's weird. And yet, when we start to obey Jesus, everything changes. I'm going to say something that some of you are going to hear as self-righteousness, especially if this is like your first Sunday. You don't really know me. And this is not self-righteousness. This is just a reality of where I'm at in my spiritual journey, okay? But here's what it is. I enjoy obeying Jesus. Now, I don't do it well. I don't know about you guys, but I don't do it well. But I enjoy doing what Jesus says to do. Does that make sense to any of you? But why do you think I enjoy doing what I'm told? Not because of the benefit, even though there is a great benefit of growing to look more like Jesus if we do it for the right reasons, but because of the relationship that I have with the one who's telling me what to do. I don't have to do anything to be Aaron Riley's husband. I just am. Because I checked first service, we committed to one another on July 12th, 2003. What, what? I was right in front of many friends and family and entered into a covenantal relationship with one another and God before many witnesses. But today, I don't wake up and think, I better do what Aaron wants so I can become or stay Aaron's husband. I wake up in the morning loving my wife the same way I loved my wife when I went to bed, knowing that our relationship is centered on Jesus and what he has done for us, not what we do for one another or him. So I enjoy obeying Jesus. And here's a part that I hope you'd understand. That the more that I do, the more that I obey Jesus, the easier it becomes. But I also know what happens when I replace God's ideal for me. uh, That's a nice way of saying when I sin. I know what happens when I replace what God's best is for me, his commands, and I replace them with my selfishness or with my fleshly desires. Here's what I know. I know I impede spiritual growth in my life. Have you guys ever thought about that? When you actively sin, you are slowing down the sanctification in your life. I never thought about that until the other day. I had this realization after I did something that was a very unredeemed way of doing something, and all of you were like, yeah, really? Tell us. What did you do, pastor? (laughs) And I started to realize that God is still growing me specifically in the fruit of the Spirit and in the attribute of patience while I'm driving on the road. Anyone? (laughs) Just Stephanie. Stephanie. And as I didn't respond in a gracious, Jesus-loving kind of way to an absolute moron who was on the street, 
You know what excuse I didn't use, which I've always used? I'm only human. I don't say that trash out loud, but I think it. Uh Uh-huh, and biblically, I'm only human, and it means I'm depraved. (laughs) And I started to realize God is still growing me, and yet at the same time, I had this moment that I was bummed out that I was slowing down God's work in my life because I was actively sinning. Because I chose an unredeemed way over God's very best for me. So why doesn't God just save us and then like make us perfect? We've, we've all kind of thought about this, huh? Why doesn't he just save us and make us perfect? I don't know. You like that answer? That's a good answer. I don't know. But I have a theory. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be back in John 6 in a decade, but Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. When I first became the pastor here at this church a little over about 15, 16 months ago, when I first came here, we went through the book of Ephesians. This book is rich with life. And we studied this passage in Paul, the apostle, same one who writes the book of Romans, writes this. He says, so Christ himself, this is verse 11, so Christ himself, Jesus himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Often we focus on this passage and think of it as spiritual gifts, or in this case, offices that the Lord has given, which I believe that is true, but we forget why he gave these roles. It was to equip his people for the works of service so that the body may be built up. But you know what built up doesn't mean? It doesn't mean so that we would have a full room and more people would be coming, finding their justification in the cool church that they attend. Ooh, ouch, that hurt me. It's exciting when more and more people want to come and engage with God's word. But that is not the being built up of that Paul is speaking of. He's speaking about maturity. He's speaking about equipping and training and helping people in their sanctification process. Verse 13, here's a verse. You can tattoo it. You can write it on your forehead. The Old Testament says you can't. You can do whatever you want to do with this verse. But I recommend you get to know it. Verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become, what's that word? Mature. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So when I say growing into the likeness of Jesus, this is kind of where I get that from. And this, I believe, is where our church is focused and headed because we as a church body, as a community, as a family are being built up. We're being equipped to be disciple makers as we leave this place. We're being equipped to be missionaries in our home. We're being equipped to be missionaries and ministers of reconciliation in our oikos, which is not yogurt. It's the Greek word for extended household. We are having the opportunity to make much of Jesus in our workplaces from Apple to Facebook to Google to Pete's Coffee to the schools that we teach at or attend to our Facebook friends and acquaintances that we meet in our daily lives And we want to help them realize that they can focus on making much of Jesus in their own lives. That they can live a life celebrating the fact that Jesus is coming back one day and we are here to train us 
to be ministers of reconciliation as we leave these doors. You know how frustrating this passage is for me as a pastor? I was listening to a friend preach on this passage, and he said, you know, this passage, it basically says that, you know, I don't have to do the work. I just have to equip you to do it. All right. I like trying to be Michael Jordan. I don't want to be Phil Jackson. I like to do. I like to go and do it. No, I'll show you. I guess I got to do it myself, Thanos style. You know, like I, there's, there's things that I know I can do. But God has called me to be a shepherd and a leader and a pastor to equip the body to do the work. And I don't want to take away the opportunity you have to grow more in the likeness of Jesus because I'm doing it for you. We want to take this message of grace that has transformed us and has been entrusted to us to help people that the work God requires is not a checklist of morality. That's what people think. But it is to believe in the work that God has already done through his son. So there's two big things happening through our church uh, community that I wanna, I wanna put on display. I'm excited about, not because this is the only thing, but that I just wanna brag on what God's doing in some specific things because I just can't stop praising God for the fact that there are people within our congregation that are actively looking for opportunities to share their faith. Hallelujah. What a, do we really believe it if we keep it to ourselves? Like, think about that for a second. I mean, you don't have to be weird, right? I mean, the text says you're peculiar, so I guess a little weird's good. But I can't stop praising God for the fact that there are people that are actively trying to share their faith on campus, at their schools, or in their workplace, or at a coffee shop, or in their own homes. I can't stop praising God that there are people within our community that are asking for people to disciple them. I've gotten to hear stories about what it's been like on college campuses, like SCU. What do you do? You snap? Is that what you do? Yeah, SCU. It's so weird. <laughs> and how students from SCU that are a part of CORE and a part of CREW are actively, and AGO, are actively sharing their faith with people in their classrooms, in their dorms, in their homes, at events, and they're being ambassadors for the king. Getting to hear about students at San Jose State that even though that's such a commuter campus, they're not trying to like, they're not standing up in front of everyone and going, Jesus is Lord. I always get a text when someone does that because they're like, hey, this crazy guy's here. Could you come talk to him? I love that text. (laughs) But instead of doing that, you know what they're doing? They're realizing that they want to do for one what they'd like to do for all. So they're engaging with one person and they're making a difference by investing in this one person consistently. We have a Bible study at Valley Village, the retirement home across the street. We have community groups that have started and people are starting to build connections and some have lots of people in them, some don't have a lot of people in them, but here's the thing, it's about faithfulness. It's about engaging with one another and rubbing off on one another with the truth of the gospel. The other day I received some texts. This is gonna be a convoluted story because I don't know how to say it better without saying names. But I got one text from a mature person in our community who said, hey, I've been praying and I'm thinking about this individual and I'm wondering if you think I should ask them if I can disciple them. And I kid you not. A few moments later, I got a text from, guess who? The younger (laughs) person who wanted to know if I thought it would be a good idea for that person to ask the other person if they should disciple them. 
I think that's a symptom of the Holy Spirit working in our community. We all know symptoms of colds, right? We know the symptoms of the flu. But you know the symptoms of God? In a leadership meeting, I talked with many of our leaders about this. And I want to put on display some of the symptoms that I see with God. See, there is life change happening in this church. It's, it's obvious. You know, the works of the flesh are obvious. Life change is obvious, too. And there is this change that is happening in people that are willing to not just repent, not just believe, but actually put into practice what they've learned. So I'm going to name some names, not because they're more important than any other names within our community, but I'm going to name some names because if you know any of them, you'll nod your head and go, yep, that's for sure. Barbara, Robin, Gabe, Malik. They're not the only ones. They're just some obvious ones. Some people that are putting into practice the word of God and we're seeing the gospel penetrate their hearts and souls and they're doing something with what they're learning. Their agendas have changed. Their priorities have changed because they've been changed by the radical power of the Holy Spirit. And I'll never get tired of that. Never get tired of watching God show up and show off. To people who believe that this community is special, not the church service, we got a good church service. But that they believe the community, it's not the steeple, it's the people, right? Like Asgard's not a place, it's a people. <clears throat> that there are people that are so encouraged by this community that they are taking lesser jobs in this area than they could get somewhere else just so they can stay within the community. People are renting and buying houses when they could go buy in another part of the state and they could have a mansion and they're buying a shoebox out here because they want to be a part of what God is doing here. That's a symptom of God, guys. Don't miss out on that. It's special. It's beautiful. So watching some of our own who God has been preparing and been maturing and growing to, more, to look more like Christ and God is sending them, usually at the end of this year, is sending them to different countries that we couldn't even find on the map to proclaim the gospel in languages they don't even speak yet. That sounds like my God. So God is up to some amazing things here. And the symptoms are not the cool new resources that we have. But it's about a community that wants to make much of Jesus. So as the passage says, Ephesians 4, verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, until we all reach unity. You want to know supernatural. Supernatural is when a bunch of sinners in the same room start to become friends and family. That's Supernatural. Us having to die to ourselves and outdo one another in honor? That sounds impossible. And it is without the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit, the helper, the spirit that the Father used to raise the Son from the dead resides in those who believe that Jesus' work was sufficient. And so together we grow in our knowledge and relationship with Jesus, becoming more and more mature in the process, attaining to the full measure of Christ, growing to look more Christ-like. Let me, let me say something that's going to click for some of you and not click for some of you. Our spiritual growth matters to God. 
which means that we don't just believe once, one and done, acknowledge once or pray a prayer and we are good, but this belief transforms our behavior to pursue Jesus and as we do, we end up looking more like him. So let's look at the crowd's response. Jesus gave this, hey, you must believe in the one the Father has sent. And so they asked him, verse 30, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? See, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Anyone remember the TV show Get Smart? Stephanie does. That's good. So on Nick at Night, for sure. Anybody else? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Anyone remember the terrible movie called Get Smart with Michael Scott? I mean, (laughs) Steve Carell? All right. And Get Smart is about this this character, uh, Maxwell Smart, who kind of was a satire. He was kind of making fun of James Bond. And he had this catchphrase, and here it is. Missed it by that much. I can hear him say it. I have a gif. It's great. Like, I love this quote. Missed it by that much. And that's what happened to the crowd. Jesus says, you want to work. Believe that the work that I've done is enough. And then they who had been following and attempting to get Jesus, get to Jesus because of his miracles and because of the sustenance that he provides, now want him to show his credentials. Dang it! Missed it by that much. God in Exodus provided manna every day, just enough to feed the millions of Israelites who were wandering in the desert for 40 years. I laughed because they weren't that far from the promised land. So what this crowd is saying is, how will you prove yourself to me today? But wait, isn't that us? Aren't we asking God how he will prove himself to us today? Don't we want more revelation? Don't we want God to prove himself to us even though we live in a post-resurrection society? I gotta be honest. Too many self-proclaimed Christians act as if the resurrection from the dead wasn't enough to prove that he was who he said he was that his word is not complete and his grace is not sufficient. And all that tells me, church, is that for some reason, many, even inside of the church walls, don't believe in the Christ of the Bible, but of an imposter Jesus that we want to control. There is this, uh, sorry for you visual thinkers, there is this castrated pop culture, karma, popular opinion Jesus that many believe in, but has no foundation of reality or truth. When an atheist comes to me and tells me they don't believe in God, I always ask them, well, what, describe God as you know of him. And so they do. And 100% of the time, they describe a karma get what you deserve kind of God. And my response to them every time is, man, I understand why you wouldn't believe in that God, and I wouldn't either. Because that's not the Jesus of the Bible that I worship. But for some of us, we may need to do an inventory of our souls to figure out who the God is that we believe in. So where do we get our understanding 
from who God actually is? Do we get it from a pastor? Do we get it from a priest? Do we get it from a rabbi or some other person? Do we get the description of what God's like from a celebrity or through some entertainment or from some misinterpretations of things maybe we heard when we were a child? We ignore the power of who Jesus is and instead we replace him with a role model that we hope will make us a better person. Hear me, Jesus doesn't want to make you a better person. He wants to save you from the destruction that attempting to become a better person leads to. We even start to look at Jesus. We start to look at Jesus and we go, well, I'm not really into that Jesus. But maybe, and guess what? Some of you, you're not here yet, but you will be. Maybe you'll stop really being a part of what God's doing through the church. But maybe at some point you'll start to go, well, my kids need some Jesus. My kids need some religion. It's not for me, but if I can give them some religion, that might be good. We want our kids to be into him just a little bit. We want, while they're young, we want them to essentially get some religion like chicken pox. Get it to them when they're young. It's really bad when they're old. We think, ah, it's not for me, but maybe it'll make my kids more respectful. Maybe it'll make them more prudish. Let's give our kids that. See, Jesus doesn't want to make you over. Jesus will take you over if you repent and trust him. And for many, this doesn't happen because for many, we're just happy, we're just satisfied with a happy life, with a side of faith, aren't we? But when you truly come to Jesus, he does not let you stay the same. It is impossible. Belief in Jesus that doesn't change you isn't biblical belief, it's superstition. So when you come in contact with the one true God, you have to know that it's gonna change you if it's the real God like getting hit by a semi-truck. You would not look or feel the same afterwards. So why, when we come in contact with the true God of the universe, do we think we can stay the same? Because if we do, it means we didn't come in contact with the God of the Bible, but one we've made up in our own minds. So get your understanding of what God says about himself from the Bible, not from culture, that thinks we can be our own gods or the hero in our own story. And get to know him, not just through the verses that you like, but the entirety and the holistic explanation of who God is through the scriptures. Do you know this book is far more important than most of us realize? And yet, at the same time, I want to caution you, don't worship the word of God. Worship the God of the word. Well, isn't the same thing? Didn't the word become flesh and dwell? Yeah, it did. But sometimes we are arguing about a verse and, well, it says this in Exodus 20, verse 14, and da-da-da, and we start to care more about the ink and the paper than we do about the living God who said it. So get your understanding of who God is through the word. Hmm. If you were choosing a spouse, and some of you are going to, If you were choosing a spouse, wouldn't you want to know what they were like? Wouldn't you want to know what they do and how they respond to things? 
Wouldn't you want to know who you were entrusting yourself to? And a lot of us just believe in a God that we've made up in our own minds without any reality set in Scripture. So would you read this? Would you put it into practice? Would you do what God says to do? All right, landing the plane, verse 32. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, verily, verily unto you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father. Who's your daddy? Gee. He who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. These two verses are going to be the access point for what we're going to learn next week. And as we discuss in much greater detail next week, this bread that Jesus speaks of is not physical, gluten-filled treats. But who the bread is that's being talked about is not a substance, but it's a savior. Worship team, would you come up and join me? As they join us, I want to read to you a uh, poem that was found in a German cathedral many years ago. And it's written in such a way that it sounds like Jesus would say this to us. I'm not saying it's said by Jesus, but hear this. Ye call me master and obey me not. Ye call me light and see me not. Ye call me the way and follow me not. You call me life and desire me not. You call me wise and acknowledge me not. Ye call me fair and love me not. Ye call me rich and ask me not. Ye call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. Ye call me noble and serve me not. Ye call me mighty and honor me not. Ye call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. That sounds harsh. But the bad news is that without Christ, you are spiritually dead. You know what's great about the bad news? It accentuates how amazing the good news is. That Christ came into our community, into our world, into our history, came into our lives, took on flesh, lived among us, did what we could not do by living a perfect life, always fulfilling what the Father wanted. And even though he was perfect, he was put on a cross because he said that he was who he said that he was. People called him a blasphemer, and he hung on a cross with a nail through this wrist and a nail through this wrist and a nail through his ankles, and he hung on the cross. You know what the most painful moment in all of history is? It's not the crucifixion. It's Jesus giving up his spirit to be, for the first time and ever, disconnected from the Father. And you know why he did that? So you wouldn't have to be disconnected from the Father. So that if you would trust that his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead was sufficient, and you would not just believe in that, but you would actually believe him at his word, and you would allow him to take you over, you will never be disconnected with the Father again. 